The Bible reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 3, verse 20. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those who are circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision as a law, and are a lawbreaker. A person who is not a Jew, who is the one, is the one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. <clears throat> but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim, that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless, and there is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Uh, thank you, Steph. It's a... Uh... It's a beautiful passage of Scripture, isn't it? Telling you what you're really like. Telling me what I'm really like. I, I might say that with a smile on my face, but in one sense it is, because unless you get that, you don't come to Jesus, right? 
Unless you see your fallenness, your brokenness, and your need of a Savior, you don't come to Jesus. And what the Apostle Paul has been doing, as if you've been with us the last few weeks, is having told us in chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, that the gospel is good news, it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first of the Jew and then the Gentile. He then, from chapter 1, verse 18, right through to chapter 3, verse 20, is showing that all of the world, all types of people, are guilty under a holy God. And firstly, in that first section, 1, 18 to 32, he talked about the Gentiles, who are moral, <coughs> immoral and ungodly and sinful, were guilty before a holy God. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that even critical moralizers, the good people say, we're not like them, but they were hypocrites too. They too were under the judgment of God. And now he hones in on the Jewish people. Now, <coughs> excuse me, if you're a Jew listening to Paul speak, you think, yeah, those Gentiles, yep, yep, we're with you, Paul. They're terrible, they're sinners, they're evil. And now he hones in to you Jews. You know, oh, wow, what's he going to say about us? And imagine they're sitting in the congregation uh, listening to some of these words or listening into uh, the letter that has been read. And he's going to say to them that you too are guilty before God. You too are going to need a way of salvation that is not through the Old Testament law. And it's going to be through grace. And it's a big reminder. And at the end of that section, uh, having talked about those three groups, he says, well, all of us are in the same boat. Cannot be saved by the works of the law. So have a look at that. The self-confident Jew is guilty. He is trusting in his Jewish pedigree, we might say, or his Jewish heritage. And uh, Paul drops eight bombshells here, eight uh, verbs to address the self-confidence. Says things like from 17 to 24, you call yourself a Jew. You trust in the law of Moses. You brag about your relationship with God. You know his will. You approve of what is superior. You are instructed by the law. You have it. You are convinced that you are competent to teach others. And you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And if you're a Jew, you're going, yeah, say some more, Paul. That's nice. Yeah, I am. I do have all of that. But he doesn't throw that in to commend them. He reminds them of what they have. And then he comes in and shows them where they fail. John Stott says in these eight statements, Paul has given a straightforward account of Jewish people in a double relation to the law. Being instructed by uh, being instructed, they now instruct others. Being taught, they are called to teach others, but they fail in every way. He lists these characteristics not to uh, praise them, but to blast them. Paul understands because he he's a Jew. He used to be like them. He used to trust in the law. He's been set free from that, and he wants them to be set free from trusting in the law as well. These people, these Jewish people, do not live up to their knowledge. They do not practice what they preach. And he asks five rhetorical questions which draw attention to their inconsistency. And as I mentioned these questions, the answer is no most of the times. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are poor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Of course you do. You're hypocrites. You teach one thing and do another. That's the implication of this rhetorical question. You don't do what God wants you to do. 
You have the law, you teach the law, but you don't even instruct yourself, he says. Your Jewish heritage will not save you. The all possession of the law will not save you. You are sinners, thieves, adulterers, extortioners, hypocrites. And he says, what's the end result of your hypocrisy? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You think you're holy. You think you're God's chosen people. You think because you have the law, you're safe. No, God is insulted. God is blasphemed. God is mocked because of your behavior. Now, this expression here seems to combine two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 52 verse 5 and Ezekiel 36 verse 22. In both texts, God's name has been mocked, blasphemed, because his people have been defeated and enslaved in a battle. And therefore, people mocked Yahweh for failing to protect his people. So he takes these verses from the Old Testament, and just like a military defeat, a moral defeat, sin and hypocrisy also brings discredit to God's name. So he's saying to these religious people, in a one way, in, in a same way that he could say to us as Christians, you say one thing, you do another. You claim to be holy, but you're not. You claim not to commit adultery, but you do, at least even in your heart. And the outside world mocks you and laughs. And uh, not only laughs at you and mocks you, but mocks your God. A Christian preaches the sanctity of marriage and yet commits adultery. A priest preaches on the importance of caring for children yet abuses children. A pastor preaches self-control, yet abuses alcohol. When the world sees how some people live, God is blasphemed, God is mocked. I read this amazing story by an American preacher called Stuart Briscoe. Now, Stuart tells a story of having to deal with a fellow employee who worked in and embezzled a large sum of money from the bank where they both worked. And the man embezzled all this money because he had two wives and families to support. When he was apprehended and fired, he stunned everyone by saying, I'm very sorry for what I've done. I just need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday in our local church. Briscoe says, he spent the following weeks in his place of employment mending the damage done by the man's blatant inconsistency. To his distress, he found that his fellow workers not only despised the man, were quick to dismiss the church he had belonged to as a bunch of hypocrites, the gospel he professed to believe as a lot of hogwash, and the God he claimed to serve as non-existence. The Jewish people's inconsistency and hypocrisy led to the blaspheming, the insulting, the mocking of God's name. And Paul says, Jews, you are not going to be right with God because you failed to live rightly. Unfortunately, friends, as I've said, many of us have heard the name of God blasphemed by unbelievers because of the immoral actions of those who claim to be believers even today. We assume we know the truth, that we're okay, we're saved, yet we bring insult to the name of God. Secondly, though, they also trust in physical circumcision. They say, not only do we have the law of God, we have the sign of God, circumcision. And uh, he says, circumcision has value, though, he says, if you observe the law. 
But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised, like the Gentiles, keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically, yet obeys the law, will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision, you're a lawbreaker. You got the word, you got the sign, but if you don't obey the word, the sign means nothing, he says. Now, circumcision, you read your Old Testament, and you'll notice it's a sign that you belong to God's people. You have the word, and that is the physical sign of circumcision. It's, it's a sign of the covenant. It seals the covenant. That's something to be honored and respected in God's people. But Paul says, if you don't keep the law, the sign means nothing. In verse 25 and 26, he effectively says, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision, while uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Let's apply that to ourselves. We're not Jews, so we don't have to worry about the circumcision issue. But for many people in the Christian world today, when they ask him about their security in God, and uh, they may talk about church membership or baptism, they might say you're Anglican or Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic or Orthodox, and so many people will cite their religious affiliation. So this is what I am, so I'm okay with God. Are you a believer, you might ask, and someone says, oh, yeah, sure, I've been a, a member at Nauwee for 30 years. Or are you a believer? Yes, I'm Catholic. Does that answer your question? The number of times I've sought to share the gospel with Catholic people, it's okay, I'm Catholic. That's it, no more conversation, right? I'm safe, I'm, I'm good. Or uh, are you a believer? Yes, I was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church when I was six months old. I'm done. And so just like the, the Jews had the law and they had the sign, many people think, well, I got, I had, I've got the sign, right? My family, my Greek Orthodox family, yeah, I've got the sign. <laughs> I was baptized. I'm okay with God. Even though I don't obey God, I don't read the Bible, I don't worship God, I don't serve God, I've got the sign. The sign is not enough. Paul wants more. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. This is where it gets to the key idea, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You may not be aware, but this whole idea of having your heart circumcised is not something that Paul has just made up. It's an Old Testament idea as well. Now, let me give you an example. In Leviticus 26... Um, it's a reference to what will happen if people disobeyed God. It says, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So it describes people, even though they have physical circumcision, their hearts are uncircumcised. Their hearts are not changed. Their hearts are not after God. Deuteronomy 1.16 Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So even the Old Testament, right back in Deuteronomy, God's saying, the sign is not enough, your heart matters. And Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 speaks of what God will do when people repent after judgment. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all and, and how you live. So Paul is looking for something more uh, than a physical circumcision. God is looking for something more than physical. He's looking after 
a work of the Spirit. And Paul now takes us to this work of the Spirit. So circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. So he's now going to explain how we can get this new heart, how we can get a circumcised heart. It's not in ourselves, not our strength in ourselves, it's by this Holy Spirit. Later in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 6, he says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. We've moved on from Judaism. We're now Christians. We live by the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 4, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We've moved. We want a circumcision of the heart. It's made possible the transformation by God's Spirit that He will pour on all of His people. And such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And John Stott sums this up brilliantly. There are four main ideas here. He says, The essence of being a true Jew is not something outward and visible, but inward and invisible. True circumcision... It's in the heart, not the flesh. It is affected by the spirit, not the law. It wins the approval of God rather than human beings. Human beings are comfortable with outward, outward visible material and superficial. God said, no, no, he looks at our hearts. Having explained that, the Jewish person would then say, if we are in the same state as the Gentiles and the moralizers, what's the good of being a Jew at least? <laughs> what advantage is there? If we're meant to be God's holy people, chosen by God, and we're no better than anyone else. And they bring up, uh, or Paul brings up, four foolish objections, and he answers them. And um, he plays uh, you know, a way of, a, a literary convention they used in the first century, the philosophers would use, and I think mentioned recently, it's called a diatribe, where someone asks the question and someone gives an answer. It's a bit like, uh, rather than someone asking the, Paul the question, Paul answering, he asks the questions he knows people want to ask, and then he answers his own questions. It's like you're, at, uh, you're a heckler, you're out straight preaching, you start to say something, and a heckler answers, asks your question, you, you go back, he answers, asks another question, you go back. It's a bit like this, picture this. And this, as you read this, you think, what are they getting? Seemingly strange objections. The first one's pretty straightforward, though. And the objection is that Paul's teaching, if Paul is correct in chapter 2, what we've just heard, that it undermines God's covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. Paul, you're undermining the covenant. What advantage is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? That's what they say. What's the use? What's the use of being a Jew? Much in every way, he says. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So you have an advantage on, 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 the, on the Gentiles because you've had the word of God. You know how, who God is. You know how God wants you to live. He want, he, you know how he wants you to behave. And if you follow that, you, you find blessing in that. You have the advantage. You have the words of God. Sometimes I say to uh, and my daughters over the years, I grew up in a family where we didn't have the word of God. No Bibles in my house. No one read the Bible to me when I was one and two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight. And, no, no, I got to the Bible when I was about 14. I say to my daughters, you have an advantage because you see from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. There is an advantage even growing up in a Christian family where you have that word. And Paul wants to say to the Jewish people, you have an advantage. Secondly, 
they're arguing that Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness. What if some are un- were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Seems a strange objection, but they argue something like this. Paul, how can you possibly say we have so completely failed, which he has done in chapter 2, in our privileged position, and still insist that we are an advantaged people? If we have failed, as you insist, then God's word is powerless and God is unfaithful. Because he chose us, he worked in us. If we're complete failures, then God's hopeless, God's faithful. Paul, when you write like this, you undermine God's faithfulness. Paul says, no, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God is true no matter how far we fall short. And you know that verse in the, it says that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. This is talking about God. Right? He quotes King David's repentant words. Interesting, you, you read Psalm 51 earlier. Quotes King David's repentant words after he sinned with Bathsheba, affirming God's justice and giving proof that God remains faithful no matter how individuals may sin. David says, I've sinned, but God, you are right when you judge because you don't sin. Thirdly, he says Paul's teaching impugns or questions God's justice. Uh, again, bizarre argument, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? This is what I'm using a human argument. The Jews say, well, if we sin more, God shows his faithfulness and his grace more. So, so why are we getting in trouble? Because our sinfulness shows God's faithfulness. Again, a terrible answer. Certainly not, he says. If that were so, how could judge, God judge the world? God is just. If you undercut his confidence to judge, um, then you make him less than God. Finally, Paul's teaching falsely promotes God's glory. Someone might argue, if my falsehood, again, enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, the more I lie, the more God shows himself to be truthful, therefore more glory to him because he's so different to me, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. It's an unfair judgment on Paul. The base argument goes like this. What are you saying? Paul is an incentive to sin. If being bad makes God look good, we will be bad so that he looks good. Friends, that's not Paul's argument at all. He doesn't even answer it this time. He simply says, their condemnation is deserved. You crazy people with these irrational arguments trying to discredit God and say, my arguments don't work. You've misunderstood the gospel. Having done all of that with the Jews, he then, in verses 9 and 20, simply sums up. I'm not going to exegete every verse in the last section. I'm just going to remind you that all of us are under the judgment of God. He says, Gentiles are sinners, critical moralizers are sinners, the Jews are sinners. And then he says, just to sum it all up, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, not at all. Hold on, you just said they had some advantage, Paul. Chapter so he has the advantage that they have the word of God, they are privileged. And yet in another sense, they have no advantage because they're all sinners. 
who already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are like all under the power of sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Paul's just taking verses from the Old Testament which describes the fallenness of humanity. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one, this is, the, this is his punchline, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of sin. Read it. Learn from the law, show you how you ought to live. But one of the key things it will do is show you that you cannot make it, that you've fallen and you need a saviour. The whole world is depraved, he says. No one gets right, becomes righteous by obeying the law. One says what the law does, and also I read the word, it unmasks me. When I pretend as if I'm perfect, it just unmasks me, shows me that I'm a sinner in need of a saviour. So for these two chapters, Paul's saying, you've fallen, you've fallen, you've fallen, you've fallen. But, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The Old Testament was looking forward to this. It was pointing forward to this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's our theme next week. But for today, come to Jesus, come to the cross, come to grace, come to redemption, come by faith, and come to the table where we remember Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Amen.